For the last time, at least on this go-around, I'll have you open up to the book of Numbers. We'll finish Numbers tonight. When you open there, put your finger there and flip then over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So Numbers 35 is where you want to open up to. Lay a finger there and go on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1. Paul is writing here to the church at Corinth, a pretty messed up church. We always take comfort in knowing that there was a letter to a messed up church, so if we're ever feeling messed up, we know right where we can go. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Paul says, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul is walking through in these 10 verses the book of Numbers. What you just read is his overview, his brief overview of the book that we've just finished studying. And the reason why we study this book is so that we don't do what they did. You might think, well, great, I'm not going to be in the wilderness, I'm not going to be bitten by snakes, and I'm not, you know, it's a completely different situation. But the application is absolutely true. It's right on in our lives. You know, he talks about that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea in the same way that we're baptized into the Holy Spirit, that we're baptized into Christ as we give our lives to Him. He talks about eating spiritual food and drinking spiritual drink, drinking water from the rock that Moses struck. We read about that in Numbers. The water poured out and flowed and the people were able to drink. And Paul says, hey, that's a picture of Christ. Of course, you may recall as we studied through Numbers that Moses messed that prophetic picture up a little bit when the second time God said, speak to the rock, and he struck the rock a couple of times and shouted at the people and completely messed that picture up. It says, don't be idolaters. Don't act immorally. Don't try the Lord as some day they were bitten by serpents. 23,000 fell in one day. He's giving all of these pictures and a Jewish person reading this, tracking back to Numbers, would say, Oh yeah, yeah, I remember those stories. I remember what happened to my forefathers, my ancestors. And Paul says, listen, you're in Christ now. It's a totally different thing. But you can learn from what happened. In fact, in verse 11, he goes on and says, These things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Israel was on the front end of world history, just learning what it meant to walk in relationship with God. They did not have what we have. They didn't have 4,000 years of history to look back over to see how God interacted with human beings. We have that. 
They didn't have the word in such an easy and accessible form as you and I do tonight. They didn't have any of those things. All they had was God speaking to them through Moses. Powerful though that was, they had no experience from which to base their behavior on. So every day was a new day for Israel and their mess-ups and their problems and their rebellion all had a lot to do with the fact that they were just figuring it out, just like little children. I think we used this example before, that you look at Israel and they were children. God met them where they were, but He wanted to bring them to where He was. Now we have all of that. Paul says we can go all the way back, we have this great example, and he tells us very specifically it was written for us, so that we could look at it and learn from it. And I venture to guess that you all have been blessed by being in Numbers. Now I know I have, because it has forced me to consider my own wilderness wanderings, my own moments of rebellion, the times when I'm not sure exactly what it is God wants for me, and I decide to go my own way, and I've seen the outcome in my life. I've never been bitten by serpents, thankfully, but I've been bitten by my sin. And I've experienced so much, and to be able to look back and cross through numbers, to wander in the wilderness with the people of Israel, has been, for me, a great blessing. We here are now on the tail end of world history. So you've got Israel at the front end, learning these things, and us learning from them on the tail end, at the very end, and we're blessed to learn from this. To learn how, as we talk about on Sunday, to live in the walk. Day by day to walk out our relationship to Christ, but also to live for the when. That is that day when Jesus returns, when he comes back. And we need these examples. We need these stories. We need these illustrations. So now we come to the last two books of the book of Numbers. The last two chapters, chapter 35 and 36. 36 we're hardly going to even look at tonight because we already studied it. If you recall the story of Zelophehad's daughters, back a few chapters back, chapter 27... That story concluded in chapter 36, and when we talked about that on a recent Sunday, we concluded going to chapter 36. So we've already covered that. We're just going to sit in chapter 35 tonight, maybe pick up the tail end of chapter 36, and we will finish our study in this book. So let's go ahead and start chapter 35, beginning in verse 1. Remembering what Paul said, these things are for our example that we might understand, for those of us here at the end of days. Chapter 35, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possessions cities to live in. And you shall give the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to live in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their herds and for all their beasts. Verse 4, the pasture lands of the cities, I like this, the King James says suburbs. <laughs> so they get cities and they get suburbs. That's kind of nice. The pasture lands or suburbs of the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits around. You shall also measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, and on the south side 2,000 cubits, and on the west side 2,000 cubits, and on the north side 2,000 cubits, with the city in the center. This shall become theirs as pasture lands for the cities. Remember now that the Levites had no inheritance of their own. They were the one tribe of all the tribes that had no inheritance. The rest of the tribes would get specific allotments of land given to them. Joshua and Eleazar the priest will figure that out. See that when we come to the book of Joshua. They will allot the land to the different tribes. But the Levites didn't get an inheritance of their own. What they did get was 48 Levitical cities. 
48 cities, and you'll see this in a moment, that are spread out throughout the land of Israel, all in and among the people of Israel. Now you may know the answer to this, but I'll ask the question anyway, why didn't the Levites get land of their own? Is there inheritance was God? Is that what you're going to say, David? That's right. See, Spencer jumps right in. He doesn't wait, wait and raise his hand. He I'm just, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> he had ice cream. I didn't. That's true. You're right. You're right. So yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely right. God was their inheritance. And I love that. It's a beautiful picture. The Lord himself was their inheritance. Numbers 18.20 The Lord said, You shall have no inheritance in the land, nor any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. You're getting better than land, says God. You're getting me. You're getting the Lord. So he was their inheritance. But there's another reason why the Levites didn't get land of their own. And it's a practical reason. And it's a reason worth considering here. It's not only that they got the Lord as an inheritance, but those 48 cities are scattered all throughout the land of Israel because the people were their intended responsibility. The people were the responsibility spiritually of the Levites. And so God wanted them spread out among all the people. If they were in one allotment of land, how would the people be shepherded? How would they be ministered to? The Lord thinks ahead. He plans ahead for this and says, I want you out among the people in cities all spread out throughout the land of Israel. Gang, we can apply this one directly to ourselves. Taking Paul's encouragement that we look back and we draw off of these things and we learn from them. We are a royal priesthood. And it is God's intention that we be scattered about communities and countries and nations as priests of his ministry. This is why not everyone is called to be a pastor. Because if we were all called to be pastors, nobody would be among the communities out in the world doing what God wants us to do. But you are called to be a priest. We've spent time in the past talking about this, but I remind you, Peter says you are a royal priesthood. You are called to ministry. You are called to be a shepherd. You are called to look after not only the people of God, but people who have not yet met the Lord. And it doesn't matter where you are or what you do. You are a priest. The position God has you in, the place that you work, the family that you dwell in, the friends that you have, this is your ministry. This is the land that he has spread us out in. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says go. And that word go is literally as you go. It's not just a command to go, but it's as you go, where you go. As you move from one place to another... Make disciples. Aaron, as you plumb a home, make disciples. As you're in that place of business, make disciples. Spencer, I know you already do this. When you're flying and you have someone at 5,000 feet, refuse to land until you have made a disciple. It's it's the perfect job, really, for evangelism. Take them up and don't bring them down until they say, I I believe. (laughs) God scatters us on purpose. Now, I have served in five different churches. um, California, Washington, and Virginia. And And in Texas, too, volunteering. I've been in all these different places, and I was thinking about this the other day, that Cheryl and I have friends all over the place that we've met in different locations. And in each place, we got settled, grounded, made great friends, and then had to have our hearts broken because we left. We lost them. Those friends that were so dear to us. 
And you wonder, Lord, I miss them. I wish I could be with them. Why aren't I with them? And he gently reminds us that he said, Go. As you go. And let me tell you something. And Gary and Laura, I'm thinking about you two right now. I'm not trying to make you cry. But I think about this call that as you go, the friends that we make, and Cheryl and I have felt this so wonderfully over the years, are never lost. And the eternity that we're going to spend with all of them that we can't be with right now is going to be such a blessing. But for now, God says as you go, make disciples. Where you go, where I send you, I have ministry for you there. And it's not always going to be easy. And it might, be, it might not be in the location or in the inherited land that you wish you could be in. He may send you over to this city. Levitical cities spread throughout, but he wants us to go. It interests me that in the book of Acts, chapter 1, Jesus says the very same thing to the apostles. He says, I want you to go. You're going to be my witnesses, he says, in, in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And yet, in spite of that command to go... It takes eight chapters in the book of Acts and a severe persecution to get them to move their fannies out of Jerusalem and serve. Because it's a good thing. They had 3,000 on the first day and then 5,000 and upwards of 10,000 gathering in the temple courts and all in homes throughout Jerusalem. And they loved being together. And the church was growing. And it was a mega church. And then suddenly in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, on the day after Stephen's martyrdom, we're told a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. Oh no, that's going to mess up everything. Our plans, our comforts, our fellowship's going to be a mess. And it says, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, exactly where Jesus said they were going to be his witnesses. And it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, I love this, therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Amen. That's what he wants for us. That he scatters us and we go about preaching the word. And you can't go about preaching the word, by the way, if you're not in the word, if you don't know the word, can you? But when you know the word, and the more time you spend in it, the more prepared you are to preach, in season and out of season, to go. Because that's what God's called us to do. Do not underestimate the place that God has you right now. I've talked to so many people over the years who have said, well, I'm, just, I'm frustrated in my job. I don't want to be in my job. Yeah, but you're in your job. That's where God has you. And He doesn't make mistakes. He has you in the place He wants you. Why? Because there's somebody there that you need to minister to. There's somebody there that He has brought you into that place to touch with His Word, to speak to by the power of His Spirit. You really believe that, Rick? Yes, I absolutely do. That God has a specific plan. He wants us to reside in our cities of ministry, scattered about neighborhoods and towns and cities and states and nations, as the Lord sees fit, so that we can be His royal priesthood. That we can touch people person by person by person. That's why we're here. That's why we are where we are. A good way to think about it is this. If you are here, you are meant to be here. If you're here, you're meant to be here. A pastor whose name I don't even remember said that directly to me as I sat in a little Calvary Chapel in Bishop, California. About a year before I heard the call to come plant the bridge. And it was a really interesting time for Cheryl and I. Because I had been really laboring over just in prayer a lot and having a strong sense that I would had in the past in different places that God was about to move us again. And I wasn't sure I wanted to. 
But I knew that that was coming. And as we were on vacation in California that summer, I was talking with Cheryl quite a bit about it. We were praying about it. We got up early in the morning. Some of you heard this story. And went over to this little Calvary chapel. There was a hole in the wall, as a lot of Calvaries start out or tend to be. And we wandered in and sat down. Nobody knew us. And we shook a few hands. And the music started. And the guy who led worship then put his guitar down and grabbed his Bible and started to teach. Kind of familiar to hear, I guess, a little bit. <laughs> thinking about that. And I sat there in the second row, and I hadn't met him yet. I met the pastor after the service. And he was teaching out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, talking about elders. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, and I'm tracking along and following. And in the middle of that study, he stopped, and he looked right at me as I'm looking at Gary, and he said, by the way, if, you, if you're here, you're meant to be here. And the Lord will let you know when it's time for you to go somewhere else. And then he went right back to his teaching. And Cheryl's going, you know, she's broken. I'm like, I heard him, I heard him. And I went up afterwards and I said, I said, what were you, what were you kind of getting at there? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, when you said if you're here, you're where you're supposed to be. And he goes, I don't know. Did I say that? He had no idea he'd even said it. He was just kind of, and it was one of those moments for me where God was saying, look, I have you where I have you. You do ministry there until I tell you otherwise. And it was a direct answer to prayer. We are a royal priesthood, scattered wherever God scatters us to do ministry where we are. And if you're not sure if you're supposed to be here, the Lord will let you know when it's time to go. Okay? Well, you might say that's fine for you, but what am I supposed to do here? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, All these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, listen to this, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he, as he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The same word, what is that? It's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is reconciliation for anybody who is outside of Christ. That's God's desire, to pull them in. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. What does an ambassador do? He leaves his home country and he goes to another place. And in that other place, he represents his home country. My home country is not America. My home country is Zion. My home country is heaven. That's what I represent. And Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And then he says we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And by the way, I think this priesthood we've talked about before, priests in training. That's what we are right now. We are a royal priesthood, but we're also a priesthood being trained, as Peter talks about. And as priests in training, we are training now for reigning then. So good friends to remember, I am in training now for reigning then. This thought still overwhelms me. And we're about to get to this in the Revelation study a couple weeks off. But Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. If you're not sure what that means, come back to Revelation and we'll talk about that. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. That is something that is a concept so big, it's hard to even get my arms around it. That I am going to reign with Christ. And not because I have earned the right to reign. But because it's His plan. Because I'm in training right now for reigning then. 
Revelation 5 verse 9 says, You are worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for you were slain. And you've redeemed us to God by the blood, by your blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign upon the earth. What is that talking about? It's God's holy government. And the Bible is very clear on this. During that time of the millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign of Jesus spoken of in Revelation chapter 20 and in Isaiah 60 through 65 throughout that area. In those, those passages we are told Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem and we, we will rule and reign with him. Best as I can understand, that means we're going to be scattered again. Ruling and reigning throughout the earth, his emissaries, his ambassadors, his representatives all over earth, ruling and reigning with him. That's so cool. I call the barn. I just want to be right back here. That would be very cool. So we're in training now for reigning then, and it's the picture that we see with the priests. Scattered out 48 cities throughout the land of Israel where the priests would reside and could minister to the people. That's what we're called to do. Now, of these 48 cities of Levites, six had a special significance. Read on, verse 6. The cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge which you shall give for the manslayer to flee to. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be 48 cities together with their pasture lands. So six cities of refuge, 42 cities just of typical, normal Levitical living. So 48 altogether. Verse 8, As for the cities which you shall give from the possession of the sons of Israel, you shall take more from the larger, and you shall take less from the smaller. Each shall give some of his cities to the Levites in proportion to his possession which he inherits. And again, Joshua and Eliezer are going to figure that out for the people. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 9, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The city shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger, so that the manslayer will not die until he stands trial before the congregation, or stands before the congregation for trial. And we're going to get to this idea of the cities of refuge for just a moment, but there's something else I want you to see. I want to point this out to you because it's real significant in the Bible. The word avenger in verse 12. And what this is talking about is, in, in, in the ancient and oriental world especially, there was no law enforcement. And so the law enforcement was the family. And if a family member of yours was killed, then you went after, or at least a person in your family went after the killer. There was an avenger. A person in the family whose role it was to seek out justice and vengeance. It was carried by the families. So each family had this avenger in verse 12. The word avenger in the Hebrew, and I suggest you jot this down, even if it's just in the margin of your scriptures or, or in your notes, the word is ga'al. Ga'al. G-A with a little apostrophe and then A-L would be the transliteration there. Avenger is ga'al. It's the person who had that important role of protecting the family. Now we read about the first mention of this back in Leviticus 25 verse 25 that says, If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. 
You might say, well, where's Avenger in that? Avenger's not in that, but the word Gaal is. What is Gaal, the Avenger, in Numbers 35, verse 12, back in Leviticus 25, 25, is nearest kinsman. Gaal, it's the same thing. Same word, same person. And the first time it's mentioned, God is saying, that nearest kinsman, your family member loses the farm. Something happens, you can't pay the mortgage, you can't pay the debt, you're losing the farm. It's the Gaal's responsibility to come buy it back. To keep that land, the inheritance, in the family. The Gaal. Now this responsibility of family caring for family, especially family in need, is next romantically applied in the book of Ruth. We read about this in Ruth chapter 3 verse 20. Naomi is talking to Ruth, her daughter-in-law. And she's talking about this man Boaz who is a kindred, who is a kinsman of Naomi. Ruth is her daughter-in-law. Remember, you might remember Ruth is a Moabite woman who married an Israelite, the, the son of Naomi. And Naomi's husband dies and Ruth's husband dies and Ruth's other sister-in-law, her husband dies and all the husbands are dead. So Naomi and Ruth, they head back to the land of Israel. And when they get there, Ruth runs into this guy named Boaz and Naomi is amazed and she says, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, This man is our relative. He is one of our closest relations. He is one of our, he is our Gaal. The word that's used in Leviticus as nearest kinsman to buy back the farm. The word that's used here in Numbers as the avenger is now the word used in Ruth as Gaal, meaning, and you might have heard the phrase, the kinsman redeemer. He's the kinsman redeemer. That is a huge, significant phrase in the scriptures. And when we get to Ruth, you'll you'll see that and it's, it's wonderful. But I want you to think this through again, process what's going on here. In the ancient world, no police... The, the, the rule of law and order, it was up to the family, it was the responsibility of the family to pay back, to avenge. And this was deeply embedded in the mind of man as God began to work with Israel and their new law that he's just given them. And so what God is saying to the Israelites is, okay, I understand that you've got this avenger principle. By the way, the avenger was not God's idea, it wasn't God's law or his plan originally. That each family would have an avenger that would kill someone who killed in their family. But God is working with something that is already happening in the ancient world. And other cultures have the same thing. The family avenger. And God is working within that system. And he's going to bring the people along. But before he does, the Lord begins to work with Israel and give them some boundaries. What's wonderful about this is the Lord meets us where we are to bring us where he is. And so he's meeting Israel where where they are to bring him to bring them to where he is. And remember on Sunday we talked about this that God was and that God is and that he is to come. He was there in my past. He is here in my present and he will be there in my future. Can't get away from him. He loves you just too much. And it's the same with Israel. He was there right where they were. They were not moral the way he would have them be moral. They certainly were not holy the way he called them to holiness. But he began to set boundaries for them. And the rule here was that the avenger could not avenge if someone ran to one of these cities of refuge. The city of refuge was protection so that it couldn't just be an out and out bloodbath. The avenger. The avenger. But what I love about this as we look through is we see this transformation of the Gaal. We see it start out. God says, you know, I want someone in your family to protect the family by buying back the farm. There's going to be someone in your family to protect the family by avenging death. 
But ultimately God says, what I really want that person to be is a redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. And that's a picture of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is our Gaal. He is the kinsman redeemer. Hebrews chapter 2, if you'll flip over there for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 9. This is one of the most stunning passages of Scripture because it's something that we know, but when it's said out loud, we go, it's amazing. Listen to what he says. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. We do see him, speaking of Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, speaking of his deity, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Now listen to this. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The God of the universe puts on human flesh and then determines to call other human beings who he created brothers, sisters. Not underlings. Jesus actually relates to us on a par. It's unbelievable. Saying, quote, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And I will put my trust in him. And again, verse 13, Behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. Verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He understands, he knows, he walked in the flesh just like we are in the flesh, and he calls us, he calls us kin. He is our kinsman redeemer because we are kin to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's phenomenal to me. It's mind-boggling. And fast forward from that to the last few years of Earth's existence as we know it, and it becomes even more dramatic because Jesus becomes both the Redeemer and the Avenger. He wears both roles. As the Redeemer, Revelation 4 and 5 talk all about this. Revelation 5 verse 4, John says, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the Lamb that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. He bought back the farm. Now, if you haven't studied these things, Revelation 5 is a whole picture of this scroll that is sealed with seven seals. And that is a picture of a title deed for the Jewish people. And the only one worthy to open up that title deed is Jesus Christ to buy back what we lost. What did we lose? Look around. We live in the world, but we lost the authority given to us by God in the beginning to rule and reign in this world. 
But Jesus buys back the farm. He is the Redeemer. The Redeemer of what we have lost. But Revelation 6-19 through 19 very clearly portrays Him as the Avenger. He is the Gaal, as in the kinsman Redeemer. He is also the Gaal, as in the Avenger. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. The martyrs under the throne, they cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And by the end of chapter 6, people on earth are crying out because of the wrath of the Lamb, the Avenger. He is both Redeemer and Avenger. He will avenge the blood lost. He will redeem the land that we lost. Now in the context of chapter 35, the Gaal is the kinsman avenger. But again, graciously, the Lord slows this process of vengeance by commanding one of every eight Levitical cities to be cities of refuge. Jesus is my redeemer. Jesus is my avenger. Verse 13, reading on back in chapter 35. The Lord says, The cities which you are to give shall be your six cities of refuge. Now watch this. You shall give three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. So three on the east side, three on the west side. They are to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the sons of Israel and for the alien and for the sojourner among them that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. So three on one side of the Jordan, three cities on the other side of the Jordan, which tells us that no one would ever have to cross a river to get to a city of refuge. In fact, if you see where these cities ultimately were placed, no one would have to climb a mountain range to get to a city of refuge. If for whatever reason, unintentionally, you're out with a friend, you're you're running your tractors together, and suddenly your tractor runs over his and you kill him, And it was unintentional. You didn't mean to do it. But it happened. Manslaughter in our language. Then you could up and run to a city of refuge. And you didn't have to cross a river to do it. And you didn't have to climb a mountain to do it. They were local. They were available. There was an even plain. The cities were easily reachable. Why is this important? Because Jesus is not only my avenger and my my redeemer. He's also my refuge. Joel 3.16 tells us the Lord is a refuge for his people. He is the one to whom I can run even when I have unintentionally sinned or hurt another person. I can run to the Lord, my refuge. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 tells us that we have taken our refuge in Him. Have you seen the movie The End of the Spear? If you haven't seen that, you need to see it. It's a little Hollywood eyes. It's not quite as you know, clearly gospel, but it's the story of five young missionaries. You may remember the names back in the 50s. Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming, Roger Ugarian, Ed McCulley, and Nate Saint. And these five missionaries went into the jungles of Ecuador to the people who were there, the Wadani people. The Wadani people were a long time, pretty ancient people living there in those jungles, and they were incredibly brutal. As a matter of fact, it's said that if these five guys hadn't gone down to bring the gospel to these people, if they hadn't gone there, the Wadani would have ended up extinct because they were killing each other at a massive rate. Over 50% of the Waodani died at the end of the spear. If someone speared someone in your family, you speared their family. And they would have these night raids as portrayed in the movie and well portrayed. People sleeping in their huts and out of nowhere comes an avenging family spearing everybody in sight. And they would all run to another place, to a safe place to hide out. And they would spear back. If you kill my family, I will kill you. You hurt me, I will hurt you. 
It was all vengeance. It was all about payback. And because they were so used to living this way, Jim Elliott and Peter Fleming and Roger Ugarian and Ed McCulley and Nate Saint were all speared to death by their airplane before they ever got to really speak a word of the gospel. But their families went back in. And what's one of the most amazing things to me is Nate Saint, who was the, the pilot of the plane, his son, Steve Saint, ultimately, his children, Steve Saint's children, would call Grandpa the very Waudani man who speared his dad, Nate Saint. His name is Minkaye. Minkaye. And he is the primary character in the end of the spear. And there's a moment at the end of the movie that's, that's incredibly touching because Steve Saint finally is taken by Minkaye. They know that, that the Waudani had speared their families, but they had gone in, they had brought the gospel, they were living with them, they, they have a relationship with them. And Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint, and Minkaye now get in a boat and head down the river because Minkaye has to tell him the truth. He wants him to know that he was the one who speared his father. And they end up on this riverbank, on this sand dune, which was the very place where Nate Saint was speared by Minkaye. Minkaye looks over at Steve Saint and, and weeping, he tells him that he's the one who killed his dad. Now Steve Saint was, I don't know, 9, 10 years old when his father was speared. Drew Kennan, think about it. Your dad speared by someone, by, by a native, and then you go in and bring that person to the gospel only to find out that that's the person who killed your father. An amazing scene. I tell you this because Minkaye says, I speared your father. I killed your father. And in, to me, the most powerful moment of the film, I'll just ruin it for you right now. <laughs> Steve Saint said to him through his own tears, nobody killed my father. My father gave up his life. Unbelievable. How could any man say something like that? Except for the fact that Jesus said, Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 10, 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. When the Passion of the Christ came out, you remember that movie? The Passion came out and Jews everywhere were afraid that this was going to inflame anti-Semitism once again. But the reality is that the Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans did not kill Jesus. Jesus did. He laid down his life of his own initiative, of his own authority. And of the four Gospels, by the way, John is the most powerful in portraying this. John makes it very clear that even as he's being nailed to the cross, Jesus Christ was absolutely in control. All the way to the end, even determining his last breath when he said, it's finished and he died. He gave up his spirit. I lay down my life on my own initiative. Jesus has become for us our city of refuge. And though we may sin intentionally or unintentionally, our sin, our intentional, even our unintentional sin, deserves death. But He's my refuge. He is the city, the place to which I can run. He's available to me. I don't have to cross a river. And listen to this. I don't have to cross a river to get to Him. I don't have to climb up a mountain to get to Him. In other words, I don't have to go high to reach Him. And I don't have to go deep to find Him. He is available to me. I say this for this reason. There's a passage that can be sometimes confusing. It's Romans chapter 10. And Paul makes these comments. Let me read this to you. 
He says the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. This is about verse 6 of Romans 10. The righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? In other words, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up. What is Paul talking about there? If you've read that passage, I've read it many times in my life and often wonder, what exactly are you saying here, Paul? But the context makes it clear. He says, don't say this. Don't be one of those who says, who's going to ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. In other words, it's not you ascending, it's not you climbing the mountains of righteousness that finds your salvation. You don't go to a high place of self-righteous living in order to bring Christ to you. He already came to you. You don't climb up to get to Him. And you don't have to delve into the deep rivers of consciousness to find Christ either. You don't go down to try and bring Christ up to you. There's a a New Age lie, old age lie really, but the New Age concept of the Christ consciousness. Have you ever heard of this? Those involved with the New Age, there are many people who talk about, and it's kind of a, uh, a, a pagan falling away really, false Christianity, of saying you can reach the Christ consciousness. And the New Age movement says that Christ was a great person, but he was great because he reached this conscious state, this this spirituality. And anybody can have the Christ consciousness. But you have to go deep, deep into the rivers of your mind to find him there. And Paul says, no, you don't. You don't have to go up. You don't have to go down. He's right here. And all you have to do is say, Jesus, I accept you. I believe in you. Paul says in Romans 8.10, what does it say? It says the word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. You don't have to cross a river to get to the refuge. You don't have to climb over a mountain to get to the city of refuge. All you have to do is have faith in the refuge who is Jesus Christ. With the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You don't have to go up. You don't have to go down. You just come to right where he is. The word is very near. So there are three cities of refuge on the east side and three on the west side. Easy to reach. But quick Bible quiz uh, here. How many tribes remained on the east side of the Jordan River? Two? Two? Three. Three. <laughs> two, two and a half, three, what do you think? It's two and a half. Can you name them? Gad. Gad is one. Reuben is one. And the half tribe of Manasseh, good. Reuben, Gad, half of Manasseh. I want to make sure you guys do that. So think about this for a minute. You have Reuben, you have Gad, not Dan, you have, <laughs> don't you love little quizzes in the middle of, that's what I'm here for. You have Reuben, you have Gad, you have half the tribe of Manasseh on one side, and then you have nine and a half tribes on the other side. Proportionally, something seems out of whack, doesn't it? Three cities of refuge for nine and a half tribes, three cities of refuge for two and a half tribes. Why? What's the deal here? I think that God knows exactly, or knew exactly what he was doing. Because proportionally, he was placing the cities of refuge right where they needed to be. In other words, the greater sin will be happening on the east side. Though there are fewer tribes, there will be greater need for the cities of refuge. Because there will be greater death, there will be more murder, 
there will be more idolatry more paganism happening outside as opposed to inside and we've been talking about this the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord and God knows exactly what happens when we don't press in when we don't cross the Jordan and take the land that he has called us to take when we hold back you know this whole idea again of scattered cities when we refuse to go when God says to go because yeah Lord you know I'm going to settle here I'm happy here We've been talking about this a lot recently. If we don't go forward, we will slide back. There's no staying where you are. You either are closer to Jesus now than you were five years ago, or you are further away from Him. But you're not exactly where you were. And so, the, the, the encouragement is that we constantly be pressing in. Going forward in the Lord. Seeking Him out. Wanting to be in the heart of the promised land. Because on the other side of the Jordan, the sin is going to be greater. And if we refuse to cross, we will slide back. Now, reading on, the Lord's going to define for us intentional versus unintentional murder. Verse 16. He says, But if a person struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. This would be so easy if we could just do it like this today. (laughs) Did you use iron? Okay, you're toast. Verse 17. If he struck him down with a stone in the hand by which he will die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he struck him with a wooden object in the hand by which he might die, and as a result he died, he's a murderer, and the murderer shall be put to death. So even if you run to the city of refuge, if you used iron, wood, or stone in the process of so-called unintentionally killing someone, the Lord says, no, it was, un- it was intentional. You picked up a weapon. You used it. It's intentional. That's not manslaughter. That's first degree murder. In verse 19 it says, The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. So there's no protection at that point. Wood, iron, or stone. That is murder. It's not manslaughter. Going on in verse 20 it says, Now if he pushed him of hatred, or threw something at him lying in wait and as a result he died or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity and as a result he died the one who struck him shall surely be put to death he's a murderer the blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or threw something at him without lying in wait or without any or with any deadly object of stone and and without seeing it, dropped it on him, so he died. <laughs> I don't know how that would happen, but just in case it did, you know. Oh, I'm just, what? I didn't mean... Anyway. While he was not his enemy or seeking his injury, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. We're dealing now with motives. And God's saying, if your motive is out of hatred, if your motive is enmity, or if there's premeditation, it's murder. It doesn't matter how many loopholes you can find in the law. It's murder. If you use a weapon or if your motives were to kill, it is murder. Plain and simple. And premeditated murder relinquishes the right to flee to a city of refuge. Wouldn't our legal system be a little easier today if we said once you commit a crime, you lose your rights? It's absolutely fascinating to me to watch and see in the news and every town it will crop up. You know, a thief breaking into a house, falls through the roof and gets hurt, sues the homeowner and wins. You know, which has happened. Amazing things like this, and it's because we have loopholes and we're trying to be legalistic. And God says, "No, hey, if your motive was wrong, you're guilty. Period. 
That's just the way it is. Verse 25 says, The congregation now shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger. The manslayer can manslaughter. This is someone who it's an accidental death. Shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the the blood avenger and the congregation, now watch this, shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. So what's interesting is in the case of a person guilty of manslaughter, not murder, but manslaughter, there's a death, an unintentional death, that person still has a penalty to pay. They still lose their freedom. They have to live, if they want protection, they have to live in a city of refuge. So they come before the congregation. The congregation figures out, no, you know what? It was accidental. There was no wrong motive here. He wasn't trying to kill. He just did. It was unintentional and accidental. Then the blood of injure cannot take his life. He just goes and he can now live in the city of refuge. But he cannot leave the city of refuge. He has to stay there. At least as long as the current high priest is alive, he has to stay there. Look at verse 26. But if a manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he, that is the blood avenger, will not be guilty of blood. Because he, the manslayer, should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after, watch this, after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. The penalty for unintentional death, you have to stay in the city of refuge if you want protection. But once the current high priest dies, then you can go back to the land of your possession. Why this specific rule? The picture here is just really cool. We're all guilty. We are all guilty. We are all, at least at best, we're unintentional manslayers. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? We've all done it. We may not have intended to. But the sin nature is at work in us in such a way that we will sin, we will fall, though unintentionally. But the life, watch this, the life of the high priest protected the manslayer. As long as the high priest was alive... The manslayer lived in the city of refuge and he was protected. But the death of the high priest proclaimed his freedom. Do you get the picture? It's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, his life, the life of Christ, protects my refuge. Jesus in his life saves me, protects me. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. As long as I live, I am protected. I'm protected from losing my life, not physical life, spiritually I'm protected from losing it. I am protected from hell because as long as I live and Christ is living in me, I am protected. Paul goes on to say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What mystery, Paul? Christ in you. The hope of glory. The life of Christ is my refuge. His life, the presence, the words of Christ in me, the fruit that he produces in me, he is my refuge. His life, the life of my high priest. And the death, the death of my high priest, Jesus Christ, proclaims my freedom. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So, capping this whole thing up, Jesus Christ is my God. He's my avenger. 
He's my kinsman redeemer. He is my city of refuge. And He is my high priest. Through His life I am saved. Through His death I am set free. It's all a picture. Once again, a whole big surprise. The word that points to Jesus once again is all about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 29. He then says, These things shall be for a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, plural, but no person should be put to death on the testimony of one witness. By the way, that's a good way to function in our relationships. Don't go after someone. Don't, don't murder them. Maybe not physically, but relationally. Don't cut them off. Don't kill them just because one person said something bad about them. You make sure you know what the situation is. If you're in conflict with someone, you need more than one witness. Witnesses, plural. Verse 31, Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. In other words, there's no other alternative for a murderer. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are. Listen to this, for blood pollutes the land. And no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which I dwell for I the Lord am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. Last thing to note. Israel's attacking Gaza as we study. You've been watching this in the news. It's a major incursion. Some of the Palestinians had kidnapped a settler and, and it looks like killed an 18-year-old settler. They uh, killed him. They have kidnapped an Israeli soldier. And Israel's saying, we're coming in. They've, they've blown up bridges. They've knocked out power. And they are, as, again, as we speak, there are Israeli tanks rolling into Gaza, into that big, huge mess that was created, by the way, about a year ago, this time, when Israel said, okay, we'll give Gaza to the Palestinians. And it just became a hotbed instantaneously of terrorism and Israel is in there right now and they're fighting this battle once again trying to just keep peace (laughs) it's what they want so badly and I was listening to some news talk shows today and and, and one one of the comments that comes up and it comes up every single time Israel is, is in the news someone said what right does Israel have to occupy this land I hate when they use the word occupy They're not occupying land that doesn't belong to them. But that question is asked. What right does Israel have to be in the land? And I'll tell you what right they have. The right is this. Not only did God give them the land in the first place, which we have seen biblically, He also redeemed, listen to this, He redeemed 6,000 years of human bloodshed on that land by pouring out His own blood on that land. Just as we read blood pollutes the land and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it well that would be the murderer right? exactly not only did Jesus be my, is he my avenger and my refuge and my redeemer not only is he all of these beautiful things and my high priest he's also the murderer because on the cross Jesus became sin. He became sin. So powerfully that he is the murderer whose blood is shed on the land. It was polluted and it's only by his blood shed on that land. His blood shed poured out over us that you and I have a right to our freedom. His blood. 
Hebrews 9.11 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. His blood. His blood. Absolutely stunning. Well, chapter 36... Reading on is the story of Zelophehad's daughters and how they walked out, what God prepared for them. And in verse 13, the fastest chapter I think we've ever studied right there. Verse 13 finishes the book of Numbers. These are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded to the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Let's pray. Father, once again, we close up a book that we've just finished studying, and I have, oh Lord, I'm a sap, you know that you created me this way, but um, I feel a sense of, of uh, kind of sadness that we're ending this book, but also a sense of great joy, Father. You have taken us four-fifths of the way through the Torah, you've given us these things to study and to know and understand, to learn from, that we could watch what Israel did and how they behaved and and how they acted towards you, and we can learn from that. Even more so, Father, we are amazed at how you acted toward Israel. We're amazed at the character and nature that we see. We're amazed, Father, Jesus, at what you took on to not only be our avenger, our refuge, our redeemer, our high priest, but to be the one whose blood was spilt in our place. Jesus, for this we thank you and we praise you. You are the King of Kings whose name is above all names. And Jesus, we do look forward to the day that at the speaking of your name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess what we confess over and over and over, that you are Lord. You are the Lord. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.